Bibles, Luke 15, electronic devices. Y'all, this is the last time. Uh, even as I was preparing for this into the wee hours of the morning, I'm thinking, man, there, there, you could do 20 sermons on this passage uh, and still not hit everything. Um, so I, it's with a hesitancy and an uncertainty that I'm like, all right, I, we're going to move on after this. But I, I, would, I would spend a couple more weeks in it, but we're not going to do it. We're going to get ourselves, we're going to wrap up um, the Jesus I Never Knew series. is going to end in February. What are we going to do next? You know what we're going to do next? We're going back to Romans. We're going to finish Romans. Some of you called me coward for bailing out at Romans 9. It's back on you, baby. I am doing Romans 9. We are doing Romans 10, and we're going to finish the book. And that's going to start in February, and that's what we're going to do in the spring. So again, we try to go back and forth between different genres, try to give you story, try to give you um, propositions, try to give you poetry, try to give you different buckets that carry the water of the word, fluctuate back between Old Testament and New Testament, because we know, we believe, we know the scriptures of this. All of scripture testifies to Jesus, right? Our aim in preaching and our aim in the scriptures is to experience Jesus and his salvation with and in all of Scripture. So do we want to experience Jesus? You bet we want to experience Jesus. But we're not just going to experience Jesus in and with our heart. And we're not going to experience Jesus just in and with the church. We are about experiencing Jesus and His salvation in and with the Scriptures. The Scriptures. Okay? Now, each of those things I just said are a different brand and tradition of church. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> all right, so we're going to look at this last sermon. Are you ready? Uh, we're going to begin by taking a couple snapshots or pictures of real life. Here's snapshot number one, Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga says, my weight, my weight loss, my weight gain since I was a child has tormented me. No amount of help has ever healed my pain about it. Snapshot number two. Recent research. Recent research says girls as young as the first grade begin to desire to be thinner. That's first grade, folks. And by the age of 10, 84% of all children are afraid of being fat. One writer says... This is absolutely epidemic. Snapshot number three, church and home cultures. Uh, children who grow up in churches and homes that constantly scrutinize behavior and spirituality, themselves and others, absorb a message that acceptance, love, and approvability are tied to your behavior and your spiritual success. Snapshot number four, the successful person. You get up at 5.30 a.m., you schedule your days, you are a disciplined person, you work really, really hard, you turn in your assignments a week before they're due, you sit on the front row, good. You multitask, you are a doer, you are a go-getter, you get things done, people, people depend upon you. You are a rock star at work. You're a rock star at church. You're a rock star in your community. You do daily spiritual disciplines. 
But, however, things are a little different with your spouse, your child, your friend, your church partner, your co-worker. Let's just say they're different than you. And so you look at them and you feel, well, superior. Snapshot number five, the progressive person. You are progressive. You are progressive religiously, morally, educationally, socially, politically, ideologically. Science and reason have shown you the way to see life, to see the world, and you have been set free from repressive ways of thinking and feeling and relating and engaging the world. So at Christmas, this past Christmas, when the conversation turned to religion and politics, you wrecked your relationship with some of your family members because you're on a mission to change the world. Snapshot number six, the super holy pastor. I was working on my sermon in Starbucks. Did you catch that? Yes. There was a table, and it was right behind me. I'm not kidding. You sit in these nice leather chairs, which I like to sit in. And there was this table right behind me. It wasn't even but a foot behind me, and this, this, this man or woman sat there. I didn't see him come in. I just knew it because they started talking, and I felt like they were talking right in my ear. I'm trying to work on the sermon. I'm in deep prayer and meditation on the text, and, and they're talking. Well, I shouldn't say they are talking. I learned that he was a Baylor professor. I don't know what she did because she never said a thing. He talked the whole time. And he basically talked about how great he was, how he did everything so much better than everyone else in his department, how he handled every of the most difficult co-workers, the most difficult teaching situations, the most difficult students perfectly. He's the hero. And I'm thinking to myself, who is this loser? <laughs> and man, I judge him up and down in my mind for about five minutes, and then I catch myself, and I go back to preparing my sermon on the judgmental older son. <laughs> now, what do all these snapshots, what do all these pictures of life have in common? You know what they have in common? They're all a part of the story of the lost older son. Every single one of them doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter if you're irreligious. You will find you in the lost older son. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
of the Lord. Y'all go ahead and take your seats. Lord, we thank you this is your word, and we thank you that your word moves, and your word speaks, and your word acts, and we thank you that you, as the psalmist said, have made us hope in your word, that we pin everything on your word, that we wait, we wait for your word like the watchman waits for the morning, and so even now we wait for your word. We ask that you would, you would unfold your words, and in the process, give us light, and we ask this in your name, Amen. All right, so he heard the party before he got there, didn't he? Loud music blaring, you know, you can see it singing, dancing, it's raucous, it's rocking, people are swaying, uh, the smell of barbecue is fresh off the pit, everyone's on their way to the party. This is a party that involves the whole town, so people are coming in from the fields and they're either already there or they're making their way there, and he's in the great throng going to this, this party, this celebration, Right? It's a scene of joy, it's a scene of feasting, it's a scene of fun, it's a scene of celebration. It's happiness is just sunshine everywhere. It's in the looks of people, it's in their gait, it's in their eyes, it's just energy, it's pulsating. It's the place you want to be. But the first thought, the first thought in this, this older son's mind is what's going on. He's suspicious. He doesn't rush into the party. He doesn't break in and go, hey, what's going on? What's this all about? I'm in. He's like, what's going on? He's suspicious and he's in control. Verse 26, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Notice he didn't go to his father. He grabs the servant. Verse 27, he said to him, look, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf and because he has received him back safe and sound. There's a lot more that went on in that conversation, but that's what was chosen to be recorded. We know a lot more went on because there's a mention of prostitutes that he brings up later. So obviously he recited the whole story of what his his younger son has been doing or his brother's been doing. He got all the data. And now here we are, we're at the center of gravity of the whole text, the center of gravity in Luke 15, the center of gravity in the whole Bible. This is the deepest, clearest picture of the celebration of grace that's at the heart of the Father, it's at the heart of the Bible, it's at the heart of Christianity. Grace is why Luke 15:1 is happening. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Of course they were. Grace is so attractive. Grace is why messed up people flock to Jesus. It's the point of all three parables. Except when you get to this one, the bottom, the bottom falls out. You don't get to the bottom of this water. But it's so clear you can see for miles and miles and miles into the very heart of God. Astonishing grace. It's the grace of a father that is so strange when it intrudes in verse 20 because everything's moving to verse 20 and everything's going to kick out in verse 20. And when you get to verse 20, it's so strange. It's so powerful. It's the sin-eating love. It's the shame-eating love of a father, this indomitable love of a father, this unexpected love of a father. This is the, the most different kind of father that ever lived. No one in the Middle East has seen a father like this. 
No one in all of human history has seen a father like this. That's why Richard Lovelace says, look, what's happening here is as strange as the wind from other planets. You ever felt the wind from another planet? You do here. It's otherworldly. It's coming from another place. It's so strange we don't even know what it is. It's so strange. It's so counterintuitive. It's so different. (laughs) And yet, this strange, active grace of the Father is the meaning of being found. And it's the meaning of being alive again. It's the meaning of real Christianity. And everything in the text is moving to that party. But the older son doesn't want to go in to the party. The older son grumbles at this grace. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. He's refusing to go into the celebration of grace. I mean, who in their right mind would do that? Answer, you and me. Some of us do it theologically. Some of us do it philosophically. Some of us do it hedonistically. And some of us do it by being good. By getting up at 5 a.m., working hard, being disciplined, being a doer and a go-getter and an achiever, sitting on the front row, turning our assignments in a week early, doing all kinds of ministry, doing our daily spiritual disciplines. Jump back to verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now we know why we're at the lost older son, right? The question is, why do we grumble at grace? That's the question. That's what this text is answering with the older son. So what's the answer? Why does he, why do you and I, why do we grumble at grace? And many of us are saying, I don't grumble at grace. And I'm going to say, bull, you do. Everyone here does. So let's see how we do. The answer is found in what the older son says to his father. So now we're going to find out why we grumble at grace. We're going to find ourselves in the older son. Remember, these are not just two sons. These are two lost sons, but they're not just two lost sons. They are two paradigms of the world. Every son and daughter of Adam and Eve generate, generally move to one of these two ways to live, to see the world, to go after your happiness, to build a life, to pursue an identity, to find freedom and flourishing. To make yourself secure and significant, you go either younger brother way or you go older brother way, but all of us go one way. And then some of us, we, we, are, we are a mutual equal opportunity employer. We go to one or the other because we don't want to miss out on one. And we do it in seasons of our life. Sometimes we do it in our parenting, then we realize that didn't work, so then we go the other way, and we realize that didn't work, but you don't know where to go, so you just go back to where you were. And then your kids pick up on it because they were raised an older brother way. Then they go a younger brother way. But then their kids pick up on it and say, this younger brother way stinks. Let's go back to the older brother way. And so it goes from Adam down to you and me. 
This is um, so helpful if we see. You can understand yourself in very deep and profound ways. Why do we grumble at grace? Let's look at verse 29. Look, this is what's shocking, isn't it? Look, look, no affection, no respect, no, hey, dad, no father, or not even sir. Uh, It's like saying, hey, you. Hey, you. These many years I've served you. Here it comes. Here's the answer. Here's why we grumble at grace. And I never disobeyed your command. Did he really say that? You and I say that every day. We say that in relational conflicts. We say it when our performance record comes up at our job. We say it while we're defending ourselves in our own head. We say it whether it's out verbally or we say it internally in our heart. Kenneth Bailey said, It is surely hard to find in the history of literature any man who so completely condemns himself with his own words as the older son. He thinks he's good. I get up at 5 a.m. I work hard. I've earned my inheritance. I deserve my inheritance. And that son of yours does not absolutely does not he doesn't deserve it verse 30 but when this son of yours came notice he's not even calling him and his brother that dude of yours comes who's devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him how could you do that he doesn't deserve any of this Don't miss this. The younger son wrecks his relationship with his dad and his relationship with himself and his relationship with his brother and his relationship with his community and his relationship with work and his relationship with the world by being bad. And the older son wrecks his relationship with his father and his relationship with his brother and his relationship with his community and his relationship to himself and his relationship to any relationship he has, the community and the world. By being good. Trusting in himself. Paul would say, trying to establish a righteousness of his own. Trying to be his own savior. Trying to save himself putting into practice a self-inheritance strategy. He's grumbling because he wants control of his life. He's grumbling because he wants control of the inheritance. Notice, notice, he doesn't want his father. Kenneth Bailey's very helpful Middle East scholar teases this out. He says, older son, you never gave me a goat. Father, all I have is yours. Older son, yes, but I don't have the right of disposition. Right of disposition means when your father dies, you've got full rights to do as you please, right? So watch. Yes, but I don't have the right of disposition. I own everything, but I still can't slaughter a goat or have a feast with my friends. Father, oh, I see. You also want me dead. 
He doesn't want his father. He wants the blessings and the gifts of his father. And the way that he's going to get them is by earning them, deserving them, controlling them, making God and the world in his debt. You owe me. The older son is grumbling at grace because he wants to be his own savior. He has a self-inheritance strategy, and he's firmly committed to it. Richard Lovelace, the, daughter, uh, the author of Dynamics of Spiritual Life and Evangelical Theology of Renewal. Now, there's, there's a work that Jonathan Edwards wrote called um, Religious Affections, and it describes how, what does a, a work of God look like? What does an act of grace look like in someone's life? What Richard Lovelace does is he chronicles all church history and looks at the movement of God and what are the common characteristics and themes of God at work in a life in a community, in a church, and in a time period in church history. It's a phenomenal book. Everybody uses the book. He says of what the younger or the older brothers grumbling at grace is. He says it's called a God complex. He wants to, we want to be God. So how do lost older sons come to their senses, though? We saw how the younger son did, didn't we? We saw how coming to his senses was becoming honest about who he is. How did he, how did the older son, how does he come to his senses? So the younger son comes to his senses, and it's, this is why it's so easy for younger sons to come to their senses. He comes to his senses because he sees his badness. He sees the desolation of his life. He sees the desolation of his relationships. He's in a famine. He's in great need. He is lost, and he knows it. It's easy to see that. The trick is, how does an older son see it? Because he doesn't think he's bad. He didn't go to a faraway country, to faraway pleasures, to faraway places, to faraway prostitutes. He stayed at home. How does he see? How does he come to his senses? How does he come to an honest evaluation of himself? The text gives us two ways, two ways, and here's what has to happen. The younger son comes to his senses because he comes aware of his badness. The older son, the only way an older son like you and me can come to our senses is if we become honest about the badness of our goodness. And that's why it's so hard for good people to flock to Jesus because they can't see the badness in their goodness. And so they grumble at grace. Two ways. First is we've got to see the bad reasons behind needing to be good. In other words, we've got to get down to the motivational, the emotional thinking, desiring, trusting, hoping, loving, um, treasuring, motivational structure of our life, our heart, and see what's in the heart and, and why and what the heart is doing in its reasons for being and doing good, for getting up, for working hard, for being disciplined, 
for doing and going and achieving, for participating in ministry, for serving others. Why do we do these things? So we need to get to the, see the bad reasons behind them. Look at verse 29. Here is the ultimate. The literal translation is this. Look these many years, and Holly read it this way. Is in the ESV, it has uh, serving, but the right translation is slaving. These many years I have been slaving away from you. In his heart, he's a slave, not a son. Paul says, listen, slaves are driven, compelled by fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of not being good enough. Or to spin it positively, the need to gain acceptance, the need to gain approval, the need to justify our existence. A son in the motivational structure in his heart is driven by love. Fear. Fear is self-centered. Fear is still self-absorbed. Fear is still needing something for self and trying to avoid something bad to self. But love is like, what's all the needing going around here? What's all the fear going around here? Just love. It's like the difference between, one author says it this way, it's like the difference between being a vacuum cleaner and being filled with the Holy Spirit. A vacuum cleaner is sucking everyone and everything out of life because it needs it, and it's in a desperate void and vacuum in its soul and its life, and everything is tumbling, sucking in to try to meet desperately the needs of the person. But the person filled with the Holy Spirit has those deep, God-shaped, God-sized holes met. with a celebration of grace, with the Father's indomitable love, and so they are accepted and free and flourishing and approved and validated, and so they are loving people. They're free to love. They're sons. Spurgeon says it this way, once upon a time there was a gardener who loved his king, so he gave the king a carrot, a big carrot, a huge carrot. And he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow, and as a token of my love and my esteem and my appreciation of your person and your kingship, my delight in it, please accept my carrot. The king was deeply touched. The king discerned the man's heart. As the man was leaving, he said, hey, wait, wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift. As a gift for you to till and work and do good on. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went to work and went home rejoicing. Now there was a nobleman, though, who watched this whole thing take place. And the nobleman thought to himself, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what could you get if you really gave something good? So the next day he brings this handsome black stallion 
to the king. He says, my Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my esteem and my respect for you. And the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. And the nobleman's face fell in complete contortion of confusion and disappointment. The king saw it and said, son, come back here. Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot. You are giving yourself the horse. Sons give the carrot to others. Slaves give the horse to themselves. If you and I begin to see in our heart that the operating structure of a son and daughter of Eve is a slave, you are on your way to becoming a son. But if you don't come to your senses, you will slave away for the rest of your life. The second point the text gives us to become honest about the badness of our goodness, to come to our senses, to see the bad fruit that comes from the need to be good. In other words, this driving, compelling need to be good produces bad fruit, but it's bad fruit we just don't see. Everyone else sees it, but we're always the last to see it. So even the need to justify ourselves, the need to make ourselves acceptable, the need to be good to find salvation, the need to have a self-inheritance strategy, that need has horrible fruit. And if we would just open our eyes to that horrible fruit again, we can be on our way to becoming sons and daughters. But if we don't, we'll keep living like a slave. So what is it? Verse 8, 28 gives you the big one. And this is the one that gets every single one of us in this room. He was angry <laughs> and refused to go in. What is he angry at? He's angry at the good fortune of his brother. I mean, think about this. He's angry at the celebration, his father's celebration of the recovery of his son. He's angry at everything that's good, beautiful, and true. He's angry at love. He's angry at compassion. He's angry at rescue. When we need to be good, we are constantly angry. We're angry at ourselves, we're angry at others, we're angry at life circumstances and situations, we're angry at the world because all of them are getting in our way to being good. I think it was my second year, year two in our marriage, after another round of seeing stuff about myself that I don't like and didn't want to see, I looked at Nancy and I said, you know, I used to be a good person until I married you. She's getting in the way of my need to be good. It was crucial and still is crucial for me to see myself 
as a good person. Slave away. Or a son. How do you want to live? Like a slave or like a son? Look at verse 29. I never disobeyed your command. This one's absolutely hysterical. It makes me laugh. It makes all of us laugh because right as he's saying that, he's breaking at least nine of the Ten Commandments as he speaks. First and foremost, honor your father, right? Oh, I never disobeyed, idiot. Oh, you're always, I'm always, you're not. How many conversations are like this conversation? The most obvious bad fruit, though, is his lack of love. I mean, it's all over the text. Love is missing everywhere in this passage. It's gone. It evaporated. It disappeared in the older son. There's no love on that passage. There's no love anywhere there. It's missing. After Cain murdered Abel, God asked Cain, where's your brother? And Cain said, what? Am I my brother's keeper? And then the story's told throughout the whole Bible, and the whole Bible is trying to say one thing to Cain. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. So when the brother took off and rebelled against his dad and went to a faraway land on the other sides of the sea, and he wanted to go to Tarshish, and he took the boat and left, who should have been in a dinghy right behind him? Who should have brought him back? Who should have rescued him from himself? The older son. This older son. And there's no love in his heart because he needs to be good and his son, his brother is bad. So come to your senses. We need to come to our senses about the lostness of our goodness. We need to come to our senses about the badness underneath and driving our goodness. And when we do, we move from a slave to a son. And when we do, now the good things, like maybe getting up at 5.30, maybe working hard, doing your job, serving other people, pursuing your gifts and talents with a full heart, maybe you'll do them because of sheer joy and celebration of grace and sheer gratitude that everything you have and all that you do and all that you is about you is a gift of grace, not to be stuffed into the place of God, but to be enjoyed for its own sake and as a gift for others. That's the way to live as a son. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in, right? But the father <laughs> came out and entreated him. Ah, it's just like the younger son. Absolute rebellion, absolute wreckage, absolute turning away, absolute avoiding the, the love of the father, absolute refusal to go into grace. And so the father goes out to him. And pleads with him. How do you know God's at work in your life? Well, for some of you, it's like, it's like a thunderstorm. It's like the father running and kissing you and hugging you and 
putting a ring on you like the younger son. It's like that. Sometimes he does it like that. But you know what he does a lot of the times? Most of the times, 99% of the time, he comes out to you and he reasons with you. He pleads truth to you. He pleads good news to you. He pleads a gospel logic to you. That's how he reaches you. In the story of Esther, King Ahir... Ahasuerus, I think is how you say his name, summons Queen Vashti to appear at a banquet. Queen Vashti refuses. The text says the king, quote, was enraged and his anger burned within him. Queen Vashti's refusal was so serious, she was deposed as a queen. The whole expectation of the Bible, the whole expectation of the Middle East is that this older son Get deposed. And yet the father walks for the second time in one day the gauntlet of shame and humiliation and abuse and eats it. Eats his son's sin. Eats his son's shame. Eats his son's abuse. Indomitable love. And of course, Luke then is preparing us for the better older brother, isn't he? Who is the sin eater? Who is the shame eater? Who runs the gauntlet of the cross? When God asked Cain, where's your brother? You know, there was someone else who was listening really, really attentively at that moment. And he was right there. And his name is Jesus. And he was listening. And he answered. I know where he is, and I'll go bring him back, and I'll cross the farthest regions to bring him back. And when Cain answered, who's, am I my brother's keeper? Jesus was listening, and Jesus answered, Yes, yes, I am. And he leaves heaven to the farthest away regions to reach the farthest away people by living, dying, and rising in your place to bring you and me home to a party of grace, a celebration of grace. Can you hear the music? Can you smell the barbecue? The story doesn't end. It has a non-ending, an unfinished ending, because the invitation is to all us older brothers out there, come to your senses, join the party. <laughs>